0: My wife's family has a family friend who is a pilot. I don't know if anyone here has ever piloted a plane, but let's imagine together what it's like to do that, to be in the pilot seat. Imagine being in the pilot seat, and as you're flying, clouds descend and a storm takes over. You go from being comfortable, being able to see where you're going, to all of a sudden not being able to do that. This family friend was in town recently, and he told us how pilots are taught in situations like this, to fly in the middle of storms or thick cloud cover, they are taught to fly not by believing what they can see, but by flying the instrument. In other words, rather than looking around like we would in a car and drive based on what we can see, their eyes are not outside the windshield or the windows, but they're fixed on the instrument panel. They are taught to trust what the instrument panel says rather than what they can see or what they feel. I did a little research on this. According to one expert, and I quote, In weather-related accidents, what happens is pilots can lose control of the airplane because of something called spatial disorientation. This is still a quote. Without visual reference to the Earth's surface, human beings are more aware of their sensations during flight maneuvering. The sensations of motion and position will mislead them to misunderstand where they actually are in relation to the earth. And the, and the expert said this, the tendency is for pilots to believe more of what they feel than what their instrumentation tells them. In other words, in a storm, let me repeat this, the tendency is for pilots to believe more of what they feel than what their instruments tell them. Confusing, disorienting sensations. And this is uh, the, the final line of the quote. The proficient pilot learns to disregard his sensations and guides the airplane by trusting and believing the instruments to guide him or her, rather than what they feel. Now imagine doing this. Imagine as someone who's driven a car for a long period of time, getting behind the wheel of a plane, and everything that you think that you should trust when it comes to driving or piloting, all of a sudden you have to throw that out the window because those things are going to deceive you, mislead you, and misguide you. And you now need to trust not what you feel, but what the instruments tell you. This expert that I quote is not a Christian. He's simply explaining what it is that pilots should be doing in flight. But I love the language here. We must trust and believe the instruments to guide us. Consider this as an illustration for us in the Christian life. We know from God's Word that we are corrupted by sin. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve, our forefathers, fell in the garden by disobeying God. Sin has so corrupted us that we are actually disoriented in our perception and in our understanding and in our outlook about who we are and about what life should look like. And what the Bible tells us is that God has spoken and told us what is true. And in order for us to know God and to live a life that pleases Him, we need to suspend our own judgment as to what is true. We must distrust our own feelings about what is real. And we must read the instruments of God's Word if we are to know what is true, and if we are to know our God, and if we are to live a life that is ultimately good and pleasing to Him. In fact, if we are to have not just life in this life, but eternal life, We must read the instruments of God's Word. We must listen to wisdom. We are in a series in the book of Proverbs that we've been in for some weeks. Today we find ourselves in Proverbs chapter 8. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. As we've been learning in Proverbs together, Proverbs is the Bible's education course in true wisdom. Proverbs is the the Bible's education course in God's wisdom. And what we have here in the book of Proverbs is instruction for knowing God and for living a life that pleases Him here in the world that He has created. If you are taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Our main point is this. Obey wisdom's call. And find eternal life. Obey wisdom's call and find eternal life. It's my prayer this morning as we look at Proverbs chapter 8. That we would see wisdom to be true. Embrace her message and find ultimately eternal life with God. As we begin this morning, let's read all of chapter 8 as we begin. This is God's word. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, And knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel. And sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield. Than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. And do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. God bless the reading of his word. Point number one as we begin verses 1 to 11 is know the truth. Point number one verses 1 to 11 is know the truth. We have been in the book of Proverbs listening to the voice of a father, a wise father speaking to his son. And throughout the beginning chapters of Proverbs, from Proverbs 1 to, to 9, the father and at times the mother too are addressing their young, immature, and inexperienced son. And what the father and the mother are doing is they're holding out for their son or sons to listen to wisdom. To embrace wisdom. To love wisdom that comes from God. And to hold on to such wisdom is the most precious thing. What's remarkable about our passage is all of a sudden, rather than a scene with a father or a mother sitting in a chair and teaching young sons at their feet, all of a sudden the parents are pushed out of the way and wisdom takes center stage. All of a sudden, rather than the parents talking about wisdom, telling their children to embrace wisdom, all of a sudden now wisdom speaks, and wisdom speaks to these sons, you see that in verse 32, she is saying, Lady Wisdom, wisdom personified as a, as a woman, is speaking directly to the sons and saying, not listen to wisdom, but listen to me. You see there in verses 1 through 3, wisdom is the one calling, the one speaking. Imagine being in a, a class on physics And Professor Brown in community college is telling you all about physics and these great masters of physics. And then one day you go to class and all of a sudden Einstein walks in. Rather than Professor Brown telling you about these great scientists like Einstein, all of a sudden the professor is there. This is what it's like. Rather than the father and the mother telling you about wisdom, all of a sudden wisdom shows up and speaks directly and says, listen up, I have things to share and things to say. Wisdom here is a metaphor and a picture of God's wisdom in the form a personified form of a woman. Here she is calling anyone who will listen to hear from her, to listen to God's wisdom. It's interesting as you see in verses 1 through 3 how she does this. She's calling and crying out. She's not whispering in a still small voice. No, she's standing up and yelling. She's shouting. She's crying out. And look at where she is. Not just the manner or the tone of shouting and calling and crying, but where she is. She's there in the center of the the town. She's at the gates, the place where people would gather and talk or deal in business. She's there in the most prominent place, shouting out for anyone that would listen to her, that would embrace the truth and follow God. Here at the beginning of chapter 8, there's actually a contrast going on between wisdom, Lady Wisdom, here in our passage, and the foolish, seductress woman in Proverbs chapter 7. Flip back to chapter 7 quickly and remind yourself of where we were just a few weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 7. There we have a seductress woman, a, a prostitute or an adulterous woman. Who is seeking to lead a young man into sin. This woman in Proverbs 7 is doing the opposite of what wisdom is doing in our passage. Look at verse uh, 6 of Chapter 7, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice. I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Verse 10, and behold, a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with her bold face, she then goes on to seduce him. Look at the contrast. This seductress woman is leading a young man astray into sin at night. She's doing it in the dark. She's hiding. Notice it says that it happens at twilight. She's seeking to to sneak in the darkness and to sin. In contrast with that, Lady Wisdom in chapter 8 is out there in the daytime when the gates are open. She's out there in the public square yelling out, not hiding. And rather than deceiving as this adulterous woman does, rather than seeking to lead someone astray by lies and deception and offering promises that she can't keep, look at what Wisdom offers in chapter 8. Look at verse 4. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So the contrast is between the the, the deception of the, the seductress And now wisdom, promising truth. This is the the main thing being emphasized in this first section. That when wisdom speaks, when she cries out, the goal is for those who hear her to know the truth. To know what is true. This is the promise that God gives to those who listen to Him. That they will know the truth. And the truth will set us free. Free. God will never lie to you. Everyone else around you may lie to you, but God never will. God promises always to speak what is true. The wisdom that comes from him and is found in his word is always true. Every word of it, every letter of it is true through and through. You will never be deceived if you listen to God. Now, it may be that there are things that God says that are hard to hear. That there are things that God says that you might not like when you first hear it. But at least you can be sure it's true. It may be difficult. It may be hard. It may mean that your life needs to change. But at least you can bank on it knowing that it's true. Knowing that you will not be deceived and led astray. I wonder as you consider this call of wisdom. Offering the truth to you. What are the voices that for you are most prominent in your ears, in your minds, and in your hearts? Who are the people? What are the voices that hold sway? Who are the experts that you tend to go to when you have that extra time and want to read or watch YouTube, The Sum of All Wisdom, and learn from some expert about something that you value? Who is it that has a voice that is prominent for you? Whose words do you hold on to, cling to, write down, repeat, memorize, meditate on? And what are the things that they're holding out to you that have value? Look at the end of, of our section here. Look at the command of wisdom, verses 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Consider this morning as as you think of the wisdom that is being offered to you from this passage and from the Bible. From God's very lips and voice. If you had to choose, if someone offered to you the Bible, God's word, the truth, or whatever it is that you want. Money, success, respect. Security, real estate, safety, a good education for your children, the kind of safe life that you always wanted here on earth. What if they offered you that? What is, what is God telling you? Take the truth. Take wisdom, even over everything that you might desire, knowing that with the truth comes everything that you need. Ultimately, a relationship with God and eternal life with Him. As you consider what it is that you value, remember what Jesus said in the Gospels. That there is a cost to following God and following Christ. There is a cost to following Him. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. We like to think of that in, at times, romantic ways. I want to be like Jesus. But what if the cost takes that one thing that you value more than anything else? What if Jesus asks you to give that up for him? Jesus uses the illustration of someone who finds a treasure in a field or someone who finds a pearl of great price. And he says that this person who finds this thing of great value, that they are willing to go sell everything that they have in order to find it in order to buy the field so they can have the treasure, in order to get that pearl of great price. Is it costly? Yes, it may cost you everything you thought you wanted. But is it worth it? Yes. The value of knowing God and being with Him forever is worth everything else that you could imagine. It may be costly to heed and obey wisdom's voice but it will always be worth it in the end. That's point number one, know the truth. Point number one, know the truth. Point number two, verses 12 to 21. Point number two, verses 12 to 21, live rightly. Live rightly. Wisdom goes on as she's been calling and crying out. As we saw in the first section, she is promising truth. And promising a treasure greater than anything that this world can offer. But look at what she offers now. In contrast with the seductress woman who's promising things she cannot deliver, wisdom now is offering benefits. Benefits to those that listen to her and follow her. Look at verse 12. I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord... His hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. In other words, she's offering a life that is right, that is true. A life that is righteous and holy. Ultimately, what she's offering is a life that looks like God, that imitates Him. But it isn't just pie in the sky that she's offering. Look at verses 14 and following. She has counsel and sound wisdom. She has insight and strength. And look at verse 15 and 16. She's practical. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. What is she offering? She's offering practical wisdom, practical instruction on living a life that is right in this world. In other words, this wisdom that she's offering isn't just simply Eternal life forever, though it includes that, and maybe that is the most important thing that wisdom can give us in terms of a relationship with God, but she also shows us how to live a life in this world in a way that imitates God and in a way that is truly right. She is going to teach us how to live in this world in a way that pleases God, how to make decisions that are right and just and true. and even that is applicable to kings and all who are in leadership. How to make decisions. How to rule and to decree things that are good and right and just. You see here that those who are in positions of leadership and authority can be given instruction from God's Word. You know, all authority in this world, God says authority is good, comes from Him. But authority that is uh, from God, that is delegated to men, is always to be accountable to God, and is always to be exercised in a way that imitates God, and in a way that is according to the way that he's designed authority to be used. We live in a world that is allergic to authority because those of us who are sinners are in rebellion against God. And because we are in rebellion against God, we... D- have inside of us a distrust of authority. It comes in us hardwired. The Bible actually holds out authority as a good thing, though it is dangerous. It is dangerous because it can be abused. And those that are in authority are sinners too, and that means that they are susceptible to abusing the authority that they've been given. My son Jude is 18 months And one of the first words that he's learned, as almost all children learn, is no. He learned mom and dad, and then no. (laughs) Now, you, you think about this. My son is 18 months, and yet hardwired inside of him is this rejection of authority and this belief, hardwired, that I know what is best, and I know better than everyone else. Jude, do you want to eat this green vegetable? No. No. Do you want to go to bed, Jude? No. He believes deep down that he knows better, and he rejects authority. All of us do this. All of us have done this. In a sense, you could say that this is what sin is. Sin is rejecting God and his authority. Sin is putting ourselves in the place of God, sitting on his throne and saying, I am in charge. I want to be the one to say what is true, to say what is right and wrong, and to decide how life should be for me. That in and of itself is a heinous crime against our creator God, who made everything and made us. It is a crime against our good and loving creator and sustainer, who made us to know him, to to walk with him, to love him, and to obey him. Yet all of us have done this. The Bible teaches clearly that the wages of such sin, that is what our sin earns, is death. Being rejected by God and cast out of His presence, just like Adam and Eve were cast out of, exiled out of that garden, the wonderful garden paradise. And yet the gospel teaches us that while we would deserve punishment, eternal punishment, life away from God's loving presence forever, That God made a way through Jesus Christ for sinners like us to be forgiven. Jesus came, that God became man and the person of Jesus Christ lived that perfect life that we didn't live, that we couldn't live. That He died on the cross, the death of a criminal, though He didn't deserve such punishment. But yet He did it in the place of those that would trust in Him, that would repent of their sins. Turn away from their rebellion and trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Jesus died and three days later he was raised from the dead showing his power over sin and death. And his authority now to offer life to any that would believe in him and trust in him. I wonder this morning if you know this God through Jesus Christ. I wonder if you have humbled yourself like wisdom is calling us to humble ourselves and listened to God. I wonder if you've been able to suspend your own judgment, to actually reject your own thoughts, your own feelings, and distrusted them in order to believe wisdom's message. Let me encourage you this morning. There is life to be found. There is salvation to be found. Forgiveness for your sins if you will trust in Christ this morning. She, wisdom, offers not only truth and not only a life that is right. Look at 20 and 21. She walks in the way of righteousness and in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. She offers an inheritance and salvation to those who will hear her. But thirdly, she offers, point number three, verses 22 to 36, life. Point number three, find life. This is maybe the most interesting and fascinating of the sections in Proverbs chapter 8. Wisdom has been calling out to those who will hear and offering the truth. She's been offering a life that is right. But now she begins to go back in history. And she trots out for us a history lesson. And wisdom goes all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning when there was no creation. She goes all the way back to the very beginning and she she lays out her experience and her resume. And she says, you need to listen to me because I'm experienced and I know what I'm talking about. Look at what she does here. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water. She goes on to describe what happened at the beginning of creation. And she says, I was there all along. You see, wisdom is an attribute of God. Was with God at the beginning. And it says, look at down below, uh, verse 30. I was beside him while he was creating. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. passage like this should remind you, should remind us, if we know our Bibles, of another wisdom book. Turn really quickly to the book of Job. If you remember the the book of Job, quick lesson for those who don't. Job was a, a righteous man who loved God and lived his life faithfully before God. And God ended up taking away all of the blessings that He had given him through the work of Satan. He took away everything from Job. He took away his possessions. He took away all of his livestock. He took away all of his servants, except for the ones that ran to tell him of the bad news, of all of his possessions that were taken away, and ultimately of all of his children that died. Now Job is left with nothing. And what does Job do? Does he curse God and die? No, he blesses God, he gives God praise. He says, God is the one who's given. God is the one who is taken away. I was born into this world naked. Naked, I will leave this world. That is, I brought nothing into the world. I'm taking nothing with me when I leave this world. Everything that I have in this world is from God. And so he blesses God. But then Job's three friends show up and they begin to accuse him of some secret sin and tell him, well, if God's taking all these things away from you, if he's, if he's treating you in this way, clearly he's punishing you for something. Chapter after chapter through the middle of Job, his friends come at him and accuse him and say, what is this secret sin, Job, that you're hiding? Because if God treats you this way, you must have done something wrong. Now, is that true? No. God was not punishing him for some secret sin. Now, Job gets to a point towards the end of this middle section where he gets pretty frustrated with his friends, and he even gets to the point of getting close to accusing God of doing something wrong. He gets close to that. And he actually wants to demand his day in court with God. And says, oh, that I could have. He begins to dream of it. A day in court with God where I can prove to him that I don't deserve to be treated this way. And then all of a sudden, the last thing that anyone expected in the book of Job, God shows up. And God gives him a day in court. But rather than Job accusing God... God is the one who's sitting on the judge's chair, and God begins to interrogate Job. And what does he do when he asks Job? What does he ask him? Look at Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now listen to what he asks. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Verse after verse after verse, God brings these rhetorical questions to Job, and he asks him, where were you when I did all of these things? Where were you, Job? Were you there? Do you know? Do you have wisdom like the Almighty? And what is the answer to such a rhetorical question? I was nowhere. I was nowhere. I, I know nothing about all of these things. And what is the conclusion to be drawn Well then, Job, you shouldn't be accusing God of doing what is wrong. Now look at what Job does in verse 40. 40 in verse 1 of Job. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of a small account, What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. How does Job answer such questions? He covers his mouth. He shuts up and he listens. And he responds to God in humility, allowing God to be on his throne, ruling over all of creation and trusting God by saying, yes, I wasn't there when you created everything. And I'm not there when you're sustaining everything. So therefore, I cannot be telling you how it is that you should be ruling the world that you created and that you sustain. Now, flip back to Proverbs chapter 8 and consider these questions that God asks Job. Where were you when I created everything? And what does wisdom say to this question? Where was she? Well, she actually raises her hand. And wisdom says, I was there. Where were you when I created everything? What does wisdom say? I was there. Not just she was there, but what was she doing? She was active in the creation. She was there as a skilled master worker, working with God as he created everything. This practical wisdom, this attribute of God, wisdom that comes from him is practical. And if you want to know what she's like, whether she's capable, look around. You have a microscope, zoom in. Go all the way down to the smallest things that are here in the universe. All of that, wisdom from God, created. You want to get a telescope? Do you want to look as far as we possibly can, all the way out into the universe? Everything that's out there, wisdom, was a tool in God's hand creating all of it. Look at wisdom holding out her resume here. She was there at the beginning. She was used of God to create everything. And what is the conclusion that we should draw from wisdom laying out her capability? We should humble ourselves and listen. We should humble ourselves and respond by listening. The wonderful thing about this last section is wisdom is actually calling us to apprenticeship apprenticeship That's an old word. An apprentice is something that happened in those olden days. It was something that was useful when most people earned their living through a trade or a craft rather than going to university or college and learning some skill or just a bunch of facts that aren't practical or useful depending on your major. Rather than doing that, If you wanted to have a trade, you would go and apprentice yourself to a master, to a craftsman, whether it was a blacksmith or a leather worker, whether it was someone who who made anything you can think of, shoes. You would go and you would serve with that person alongside them and learn as a disciple or an apprentice to the master. In other words, there were things that had to be learned that couldn't be taught in a classroom that could only be learned on the job. And so you would go and you would work with someone who knew what they were doing and you would watch them. You would imitate them. The way that they used their tools. The way that they approached problems. The way that they crafted things day in and day out. And look at what wisdom is saying to these her sons. Verse 32. Listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise, and do not neglect it. And look at what she says in 34. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Wisdom lays out her resume, her experience, her capability, and she says, come, learn from me, wait at my doors and at my gates, come as an eager student and learn from me, follow me, be my disciple. We talked at the beginning of our sermon, beginning of our passage of how wisdom is now taking center stage pushing the parents out of the way who've been talking about wisdom and speaking herself. The Bible develops in an interesting way. As wisdom is speaking here as a metaphor, there is someone else who ends up taking center stage in redemptive history, who speaks in ways that are similar to wisdom here in our passage. Jesus was born, born of a, of a virgin. Jesus God become man in the incarnation. And when Jesus came, he came and he declared, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said things like, I tell you the truth over and over and over again, or depending on your translation, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you over and over again, Jesus is declaring, what I say to you is true, listen to me. He began to live a life that could be imitated a life that was right and just and true. He taught people how, through his teaching, a life that that imitates God is a life of righteousness. And not only that, he called any that would follow him into apprenticeship with him. And he called people to come and to be his disciples. He did this with a few, 12 disciples Three that he brought in even more closely to be with him in a more intimate way, but he called any that would follow him to do it. You think of the illustration of Einstein showing up in a physics classroom, you think of wisdom showing up in the middle of a conversation between mother and father and their children. Now imagine Jesus showing up. Jesus is not just an attribute of God, he is God Himself become man. And while the New Testament says he is the wisdom of God, he's not just one of God's attributes. He is God himself in the second person of the Trinity. And he has come to show us the way of life. And that way of life comes through death, through denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, being willing to suspend our judgment about the things that we want, the things that we desire, the things that are true in order to listen to him, follow him, and ultimately by believing in Him to find life eternal. I wonder, as you are navigating life this morning, what is the instrument panel that you are reading as you're going through life this morning? I wonder if your instrument panel is failing you because it isn't right, because it isn't saying things that are true. I wonder, as you're navigating through life this morning, if you're actually on a collision course, if you're actually in danger of crashing the plane of your life because you are listening to the wrong people rather than listening to wisdom and listening to God. This is not simply a question of having some tips or advice to give you the best life that you always wanted. No, the wisdom that God offers is actually perhaps going to change everything that you thought you wanted. It's so disorienting and reorienting the wisdom that God offers to us that we must reject everything perhaps that we feel and believe in order to trust God. But the promise is here. Look at at it there at the end of Proverbs 8, verse 35. The person who listens to wisdom finds life. And obtains favor from the Lord. I'm not sure what this means for you this morning. It may mean that if you're here and you're not a Christian. That you need to reject everything that you've been holding on to as true. In order to embrace what God is saying to you. If you're here and you are a Christian. I'm not sure what reorientation has to happen. But let me encourage you. To go to God with it. And ask him for wisdom because he promises to give truth to any that will listen and be diligent to find it. It may mean that you need to change the course of your life. It may mean that you're pursuing things that you shouldn't be. That you're valuing things that you shouldn't be. It may mean the reorientation is a reorientation of values, priorities. It may mean that you're heading, you're playing in the wrong direction and you need to turn it around. Or maybe your course has gotten little by little down the wrong path. But whatever it is, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to repent of any sin that we are tempted to hold on to and to reject any voice that lies to us in order to find truth and ultimately to find life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for speaking truth to people like us who do not deserve it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to speak truth to those that have rejected it. To those of us that have rejected you. It is only because of your mercy and kindness that you would continue to offer truth and wisdom to sinners like us. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in each heart that is here this morning. Do the work that needs to be done to change us, to humble ourselves, to listen. That you would do the work to cause us to repent from sin that opposes you. And ultimately, do the work in our hearts that would cause us to run after Christ and be his faithful disciples, following him wherever he leads. Pray that you would do this for your glory and for the good of your children. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.